Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. What is happening, gang? We are talking to you today about setting your franchise up for the offseason. But in the podcast world, there is no offseason. You're probably thinking to yourself, how do I monetize my podcast? Or if you own a brand, how do you get the word out about your product on shows that everybody loves? Well, look no further than Podcorn. Podcorn is the industry leader in setting up brands with shows that everybody loves. It's simple. It's easy to use. It's intuitive. There's new sponsors added to the platform every week, and it's so beneficial. Bananas, as we said last week, Rick is actually using this thing. So what are you waiting for? If you're a podcaster looking to monetize your show, or if you're a brand looking to advertise on shows that everybody loves, sign up today. Head over to www.podcorn.com to get rolling. is happening gang we have got a jam-packed show for you today on the inside football podcast with bill pulling in today's episode much like what's happening in the league we begin our off season and just to remind you guys in the off season we hit some of the big topics that will be of conversation in the league get to a chance to dive deep into them and then also tell some stories from the past so this is going to be a fun few months as we navigate through the nfl offseason in today's episode we go through kind of the gm schedule so what happens at the end of the season all the way up to march 10th so this compressed period when your season's over what, what happens do you get a break how do you build you know your roster how do you look through the players that you have on the team so this is truly an awesome episode and a rare window into how things actually work in the nfl in terms of how you deal with the cap how you do cash on hand how you deal with value related to players so sit back relax and get ready this truly is one of those football education episodes with bill polian this is the gm schedule All right, very cool, gang. Well, we started at 6 today, and we are ready to roll. The countdown is over, and we are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. In Rick? <laughs> that, was, that was me. I shut it off. We're, keep, we're keeping it in the show. 
Uh, all right. So without further ado, we've got Rick's phone on silent. Uh, no one has yelled at him yet, so that's usually a good sign. And we are off. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. And this begins what is my favorite part of the year, where we get to kind of dive into some of the broader issues related to the league, some of the deeper insights that we can pick Bill's brain about. So this is going to be a fun few months, gang. And without further ado, today's episode, we're jumping into what a GM's offseason schedule is like. Uh, Rick, kick us off. Absolutely. Um, so, Bill, uh, independent of the kind of season you've uh, a team has had, uh, GMs have been through a long, long trek. Uh, long days, tough decisions, uh, little family time, uh, sometimes generally except for one team, disappointment at the end. Uh, when that comes to a close, you know, what happens then? Do you, do, you, do you get any time off? Yeah, yeah. We've we've been uh, working for uh, almost uh, seven months straight, seven days a week, eighty hours. Uh, seven days a week, eighty hours a week. So um, everybody needs a little time off, and uh, you got to get everybody. But one team goes home unhappy, so you have to get a lot of that venom out of your system as well. Uh, in order yeah. to make good decisions. So uh, everybody takes a two-week break. Um, the pro scouting people uh, have been doing weekly reports on, on our team uh, during the season, so they just finish them up during the break and, and, and come to a, a conclusion, what we call a one-liner. It's not really a one-liner, but it, 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 it's a short version of the evaluation process and the coaches have done the same. So uh, the position coaches have done the same, and the, uh, and the coordinators have done the same. So when we get back from the break, uh, everybody sits down, and we have a squad evaluation meeting. Um, it, depending on how the general manager wants to do it, um, they would, you would have all of the coaches there and all of the pro scouts there, or you could do it one at a time um, with just the coordinators in the room and the position coaches coming in and out and the pro scouts there. That's the way we did it um, so that um, th there's no need for the defensive line coach to waste his time listening to the offensive backfield coach evaluate those guys. So once you get back from the two-week break, the squad evaluation begins. So uh, two quick questions. One, was two weeks enough in 2003 to get the venom out? Oh, no. It took us uh, a bit of part of about eight months to get the venom out. <laughs> I figured that might be a special venom venom process. There was, a, there was a venom period of the day because you tried to end the meetings around 5 o'clock, and then everybody gets a workout, and then you come back to the desk and do whatever is enough to do. So that was the venom letter writing period. Right. So the letter that I finally sent to the league uh, questioning the officiating in, that, in the AFC championship game that year uh, went through easily, easily 25 iterations. And the venom level, the, the, the venom that was pouring out of my pen <laughs> reduced over time. Pretty good. Let me, uh, let me ask one Bill Polian, another Bill Polian specific question. Not even in a year like that, but you know, you get these two very brief weeks uh, after just uh, 
something that is completely uh, compelling. N knowing you, even when you take those two weeks off, are you really able to not think about anything to, about football and just think about family or whatever, wherever you're vacationing, or does it crop into your mind occasionally? In oh, no, it's weeks? always there. It's always there. You know, you wake up at, uh, you might not wake up at five in the morning. You know, you probably wake up at 630 and, and say, okay, uh, jot down this th thought, jot down that thought. You know, you might be out jogging. Okay, I've got a thought. Um, what it does is, is help you clear your mind and, 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 and calm your nerves and, and get your body back in human sync as opposed to what you do, especially if you've been in the playoffs <laughs> in the NFL. Right. That makes sense. All right. So in terms of the squad evaluation, can you break it into what the component parts are and what we need to focus on? Yeah. And they're done, uh, they're done in order, in a, in a linear fashion because they involve different actors in each, in each uh, stage. So the first thing you do is, is evaluate the player as a football player. I'll go through the stages in, in toto here, and then we can come back and visit each of them individually. Um, that's the coaches and the pro scouts. The next thing you do is you go to the medical people and you get a, a medical evaluation on each player. And then you bring the strength and conditioning staff and the analytics staff into that meeting and you get an actuarial uh, evaluation. In other words, Scott Schaefer has had a his second surgery on his shoulder. Um, he won't be ready to go until July at the earliest. Um, he's 29 years old with two shoulder surgeries. Uh, Mr. Analytics, what, what, what does the data tell you? The data tells me that he has no more productive years coming. We, we you know, the, the likelihood of, of high-level winning production, even though he's been a winning player in the past, is probably less than 15%. So th those are the kind of decisions that, and, and the kind of evaluations that you make. And then the last one is financial, where you would bring the uh, cap guy in and, and and he doesn't get to make a presentation. He's a witness. He gets cross-examined. <laughs> cross they all try to make presentations, by the way. And, uh, and, and we, we, we developed over time a way to kind of diffuse tension by making believe that it was a court. You know, we, we, it was Judge Judy or whoever <laughs> it was, Judge Bill that happened to be in it. A given day, or someone else would be sitting. Judge Tony would be presiding, and uh, so when the financial, when the cap guy came in and and tried to make a presentation, I'd gavel him to silence. Said, "No, no, this is you're going to take questions here from the uh, from the the prosecutors. This is you. You don't get an opportunity to uh, make any presentations here. If you want to make a presentation." You file a brief with the court. <laughs> post hearing, post hearing. Yeah. So, uh... so Bill, let me ask you this: in in terms of that very first step, uh, just the winning player in and of itself. Of course, the other categories, you know, actually also affect all that. But how do you take into account? 
uh, obviously it's going to include uh, talent and effort, but how do you take into account things like scheme, uh, playing time, uh, supporting cast, and so on? Because all those things obviously can sometimes cover up deficits of a, of a bad player or deny a better player the opportunity to fully shine. Well, there's that's not true, but but it, when you you develop uh, you develop a, a a process and a system that tells you, okay, this is how the guy plays in the system. We're not talking about anybody else's system. We're talking about our own. So that's automatically taken into consideration. Secondly, he's being compared to his peers on the team. Third, he's being compared to the people we play against. Did he turn in a winning performance? Was it a blue performance? Was it a red performance? Was it a purple performance in, in any given game? And that's tracked throughout the season. And so, for example, if you had a player, I read something today where there was some talk about a quarterback who played well against lousy teams and not so well against good teams, that would be automatically tracked and that would be part of the process. So it, it's all built into the grading system. And, uh, and the grading system takes you to, it, it takes all of those exigencies in, into consideration. Bill, in thinking through this a little bit, how fouled up does this process get when you make a, a coaching change at the head coach level, at the coordinator level? Because I, I think, you know, the media story is always continuity, continuity, you want continuity. I would think in looking through kind of how this process is laid out from a GM's perspective, once you start making changes at the coaching staff, this has to gum up that entire two-week break and how the initial part of this process works, right? Yeah, well, you could just go at it from a different perspective. Uh, you, you, first of all, you let the head coach determine and the coordinators determine what the process is going to be. They tell you what, what the emphasis is going to be on skill set. Let's use a defensive tackle as an example. Uh, in, 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 uh, in the Parcells-Belichick uh, system, he would have to be a guy who could take on a block, get in the middle of the block, uh, stop the guy, come off and pursue in the Dungy system, he's got to get first step quickness through the gap, um, recognize the play, pursue the play from behind, can he run, etc. So the, the new head coach and the new coordinator set that up. I would take um, one of those two weeks if, you, if you're, you've got a new coach coming in and sit down with him and, and, and have him sit down with the pro scouts and go through all of that so that we were, we were all on the same page once we got into the meeting. And and there might and there are times in those meetings um, where it gets a little contentious because there's a little bit of resentment about change in system. So right. you know, a scout. I remember distinctly a scout saying, "This guy's been a good player for us. He really has. He's been a good player for us, and we ought not to dump him." And and the coordinator is saying, "No, he doesn't fit. He just he, that's not what we're doing." So. You know, those that can happen. Hopefully it doesn't happen too often. And if, if you're the general manager and it happens a lot, you're probably not the general manager anymore. Right. You're thinking, what what, what have I gotten myself into? Well, this scheme doesn't fit the players. Yeah. Uh, so, Bill, uh, on the injury um, aspect, uh, can you 
Is there a way to sort of articulate the risk reward ratio in terms of, you know, this guy was really good, but here's the injury. Here's what he could produce if he's healthy. You can't really tell, you know, because he hasn't really been out there doing it. How, how do you, how do you, how do you analyze that risk reward? Well, it's all spelled out in the process. So the, the doctor would say, Scott Schaefer's had two labrum surgeries now. And, uh, and, and so he's not going to be in the off-season program. So he's going to have a strength deficit coming in. Uh, he's not going to be available till June at the earliest. Uh, and this is the second surgery on the same shoulder. Um, I'm going to give you an example here. This would be unspoken because we all in the meeting know what the actuarial parameters are. So for, let's just say Scott was a guard, second surgery on a shoulder, on the same shoulder, automatically makes you an F injury, meaning big injury risk. We would automatically know that. But for the record, the doctor and the, and the trainer would say that makes him an F injury. And then the actual, the, the analytics person would say, based on F injury, based on the data that we have, which goes back to 1977. No, I'm sorry, 1970. Um, this, this player has really no chance of ever performing at, at a red or blue level anymore because of the injury. That's what the, that's what the analytics tell you. And so then you go to the financial evaluation, which is to say now someone at the table, likely the coach would say, look, I, you know, I hear all this. I understand it. This might be the position coach or the, or the, uh, uh, the coordinator, the, the head coach is a judge, so he doesn't really put his finger on the scale until it gets all the way to the end. This, this is listening to the, what everybody has to say. So, you know, the position coach might say, listen, I, I know that, 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 the, that the, you know, the odds are not good on this. I know we're, we're looking at eating some money here. He's got two more years left on his contract. Um, you know, but I really would like to have him. And so then I would say, okay, doc, okay, Mr. Trainer, okay, Mr. Analytics, can he give us six consecutive games if we have to play him that way? The answer would come back, yes, no, I doubt it, usually I doubt it. And then the question becomes, why do you doubt it? Well, you know, there's arthritis in there. That's the bottom line. And we all know that he has to be managed in practice. And when an offensive lineman has to be managed in practice, he might not, you know, he might as well not be in practice. So those are the kinds of discussions that take place. So I would mark then in my financial column, I had what amounted to a scorecard. And so did the personnel directors pro in college. And, and I might mark in the financial column, you know, instead of, instead of question mark, I, I would put, you know, big risk. And, and then the, as we get back to determining who's on the squad and who's not going to be on the squad going forward, then we'll address the issue of whether or not we're willing to take that risk at, at what amount of money. So to, to, to 
bring the story to a close, you might be willing to say, hey, yeah, we'll keep him for one more year, but not at this money. The owner's not going to let us keep him at this money if he's if all he can do is play six games that he can't practice. Right. And that's what you're trying to, that's what you're driving at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How complicated does that decision-making process get when you deal with things like quarterback or you deal with sort of legendary players in that position? So when you have to think about things outside of the context of necessarily, hey, this is a replaceable component. This is somebody who has a longstanding track record with our fans, those kinds of things. Say like Peyton Manning. We had, we had, two, we had two, um, two categories. The first is positional category. Um, and let's talk defense. Uh, all but, but, but the, the middle linebacker was always fungible. The strong linebacker was always fungible. The will linebacker was never fungible. Okay? So if this was Cato June we're talking about, or David Thornton, we're saying, wow. This is a tough blow. We got to replace this guy. If if this is a player who's, uh, uh, you know, no better than a backup player in the long run, at a linebacker position that that isn't valued like Sam, we would just say, no, nah, he's really not in our plans. We can find better in collegiate free agency or in the draft. Um, assistant coaches don't want to hear that because they don't like the coach rookies. Right. So, that you know they'll grumble, but that that's that's the way it is. Plus, we don't make any final decisions. We're just this is we're getting witness testimony here. You know, yeah. we're, we're, um, but but that's that's how it would come out. Now, if if it's Peyton Manning, if it's Edger and James, um, Edger and James is the prime example. Edger and James is the prime example. All the answer, all the all the. All the boxes were checked negative um, prior to his last year with us. The medical was bad. The, uh, the you know the the play had gone down because he, because of the knee. Um, it was the fourth year out of the surgery, and it with the arthritis was really kicking in. Um, the actuarial wasn't good, and. Uh, and 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 we weren't willing to commit a lot of money. And Jim Irsay said, "Put him on the tag. We're keeping him for one more year. He's not going out like this. So, and we're not trading. So, you know that that's that's how you that's how those decisions are made. And in a case like Peyton's, where you knew you know you'd be out out for you just say this is irreplaceable. We we'll wait." as long as it takes to see if this is reasonable that he'll continue? No, we, we had a, we, we, well, first of all, he was operated on. So we knew what the outcome of the surgery was. He was going through the process of, of evaluation of, uh, of rehabilitation, excuse me. And we, we knew he would be back and we knew he'd be back at a, at a reasonable level. Um, Jim was unwilling to take the risk of his, becoming seriously injured, paralyzed, or, you know, having his lifestyle disrupted because the surgery didn't hold over time. But there was no, 
there was no medical indication of that. All all the lights were green medically, and and we had already discussed that, you know, four years was the the, the longest he would play in this under this present contract. So that never became an issue. We the, the Jim let him. The Jim didn't want him. Didn't want to risk uh, a serious long-term injury. That's why he let him go. So one sort of modern question I have when we were thinking through this section, and this is probably my sort of dumb fan perspective, but it seems to me, and this is just anecdotally, there's more quarterback movement or at least bigger theoretical quarterback movement, you know, earlier in this process. How much of that stuff is a function of this early part of this kind of post two week period or how much of that's been decided late in the season already? Well, um, you know, I, obviously I'm not in the rooms anymore, but it, it seems clear to me that Detroit had made the, the decision to get rid of Stafford. Ownership and management had made, upper management, the, the team president had made that decision. They hadn't even hired the coach or the general manager when they, when they said they were going to trade him. So that was made without the input of those people. Um, the Wentz thing was decided, at, you know, before the end of the season, essentially. Um you know, uh, Deshaun Watson took on a life of its own uh, because of the coach process. So those are, they're kind of anomalies. Okay. Um, Okay, so having made all of those, having gotten all that information, including the financial, which I didn't cover in, in great detail, the object of that is to try to put a price tag on 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 what you would be willing to pay for this player based on what you think the open market will be, what his value is, what his value is to us. That's a very subjective situation. And people who try to try to um, depending on who they are, who try to. Um, predict the market are, are always wrong. Right. And, and thank God I worked for a great owner in Jim Irsay who, who had been a general manager. So he'd been through this process before. By the way, he never sat in on this. He, he just got the results from Tony and I. Um, but, you know, he, he would always say, well, whatever the budget is, make it 10% more. You know, the agent's going to get it there. <laughs> yeah, boss, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, so the, the whole purpose is to try to put a contract number there that it, while it's not cast in concrete, it's pretty much cast in stone so that you know that you're not going to exceed this if there's a negotiation involved or if the player has to take a cut in order to stay that's the area that he has to be in. It's not cap related. It's value related. If I, am I making myself clear on that? Yeah. So value. So, but are those sort of independent concepts where you look at the value first and then you look at the cap ramification second? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Which brings me to the cap. The next evaluation is the cap evaluation. The first thing you do is is if it's not already been decided from on high which is 
which is was the case always with the Colts. Um, you have to determine in a given year whether the owner will allow you to go cash the cap or cash above cap. Let me explain what cash the cap means. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. If the cap is $180 million, that means for the entire payroll for the whole year, you can you cannot spend above $180 million. Hey, Bill, why, why don't you explain what the components, you know, that would make up that 180 are so people can... Well, there's no reason to go there yet. Let me let me let me let me talk about the the general concept first. If, for example, you were in a year where Marvin Harrison and Edger and James and Peyton Manning's contracts were all up in one year, which meant that I did a bad job structuring the the, the payouts, but it it can happen, I guess. Um, now the, the 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 signing bonus money is going to take you in terms of total expenditures over 180 million you might get you be you might be up in the 220 million range in cash right because signing bonus money is cash so um, the the whole process is fraught with danger if you have a lot of good guys up in a given year and you have to stay cash to cap. So in that situation, uh, teams like New England always did cash to cap on a three-year rolling basis. So if the cap this year was 180 and next year it was 200, that's 280. And the year after that, it was 220. That's 400, right? At the end of three years, they couldn't spend more than 400 in cash. You with me? With you. Yep. Okay. Okay. I want to make sure everybody understands that. We did not do that with the Colts. If we had a situation where we had to go, um, we had to go to uh, uh, above cash, above cap, then I, I had to go to Jim and, and, and get a special dispensation. But so, Bill, is that done in New England for that example from just a cash flow management standpoint? Yeah, that's exactly right. But that so that's not like a football decision. No, that's more just, hey, this is how we have to operate. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And because we had less cash flow than New England, we couldn't do it on that three year rolling basis. We had to do it on a year by year cash to cap basis. And, and, And that's true of a lot of teams in the league. And now you never go below cash to cap. If you, if you do, if you have a good year signing players, um, you know, that, that it doesn't carry over. At least it didn't, it didn't anywhere I worked. Uh, if there was, if there was a profit on the, on, on the payer payroll, uh, player payroll, um, it didn't roll into next year's uh, budget. <laughs> that didn't show back up. No. So there, there you go. No. Uh, now back to Rick's, Rick's question. What, what is, what is that cash made up of? It's number one, what is called paragraph five salary. That means that what the payer, player is paid to play uh, every week in the league. Uh, secondly, it's made up of signing bonuses, guaranteed money, signing bonuses, roster bonuses, reporting bonuses that are um, paid in cash when earned incentive bonuses, which are paid in cash at the end of the year, if earned. Um, All of that 
counts toward that 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 cash number of 180 million dollars. So you have to manage how you you know what what reserves you have and so forth. Injured reserve counts. So if you have a very bad injured reserve year, you can find yourself in a deficit cash to cap. It 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 counts about in this day and age about seven million dollars for signing of rookies and uh, cash to rookies and uh, and uh, injured reserve and practice squad. That's what makes all that number up. So um, uh, it, that sounds complicated. It isn't when you look at it on a spreadsheet. It's very simple math. And, uh, and, the, and the issue always is, um, there are two issues. The first is, um, you know, can you get those free agents that, that you want to get signed? In our case, with the Colts, our own almost exclusively, um, with a, a minimum of cash outlay so you can stay under cash to cap, which means future year guarantees and things like that. Um, or um, does it does it impede you because you don't have enough money to meet whatever the market may be on on a given player? That's why those financial uh, estimates made in the, in the previous evaluation process are so important. You never want to you never want to lowball those because you've got to always presume that the market's going to run away from you. Not that this is a question that I think a lot of people ask often, but how hairy could the cash portion of this be for ownership and cash strap franchises without some of the ancillary revenue or not ancillary, but the additional revenue outside of TV coming in from the stadium stuff in this particular season ahead? Could we be in a situation where just from a strict liquidity standpoint, you could have teams making broad decisions based off of just the fact that they have a liquidity issue. Well, there there really is never a liquidity issue in the NFL because um, uh, television money comes in from September to January. Season ticket money comes in in June, and from June to September, and then gate receipts come in from September to January. So that all teams basically live from this time, from January 3rd through June or July when the first season ticket payments come in on a line of credit. Okay. And so you just simply adjust the line of credit based on what you expect the revenues to be. And they, and they can forecast that pretty accurately. And so, yeah, it would cost you a little more interest money because you're taking out a larger line of credit. But that's there's insurance against that. I don't I'm not sure I haven't looked at an insurance policy in a long time. I don't know if pandemic insurance is available. It's probably not available now. It might have been earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. A few months ago. Yeah. And, and, And I recognize, by the way, for fans, I'm really getting into the business weeds here. But this is this is business time in the NFL, which is why we're doing it. Um, so, well, yeah. And I think we had a number of questions about that, even from fans this week of you hear all the sort of renumerations of the, the new TV deal. And let's say it's just for the hype, this hypothetical, 
if it's you know 10 billion over 10 years so 100 billion dollars how much of that money goes to teams is that just equally divided by 32 teams yeah it's divided by 32 but does the league take uh any of that tv money off the top it well it, it it's divided by 33 the league office gets a share in essence but it's paid from the team back to the league in the form of a, what amounts to a tax and and and, and that's for tax purposes but the league office operates on one share of essentially of television money. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting because if you start just doing math, you know, that that's maybe 200. And if you take that one share out, that's probably 280, 290 million dollars to the clubs. So if your cash to cap ratio, if you do a lot of bonuses this year, you know, with 180 million dollars plus bonuses, let's say you spend 220, 225. It could get a little tighter than it normally gets. Yeah, it, yes, because revenue, don't forget, the club's pure profit amounts to, um, let's just say that uh, the television was $250 million, just to pick a number out of the sky, right? Player costs can't exceed $180 million or maybe $200 million tops, even if you went, if you went crazy with bonuses. Right. Uh, which people don't, by the way. You can... You can you can space them out, the payments out over time. Uh, the best example being the Bobby Bunny of baseball contract. He's he's still collecting. Right, he's still getting yeah. paid. You know, guess what? The club made out great on that because the money was in the bank all that time earning interest. The player does does not understand present discounted value of the dollar there. Yeah, present value. I don't I, I don't want to go anywhere near present value. We'll we'll lose a hundred percent of our ninety nine percent of our audience. The the uh, um, but the fact of the matter is that before at two hundred fifty million with a hundred eighty million dollar cap, before the owner puts the key in the lock, he's probably made close to forty million in profit, maybe thirty million depending on how much debt and so forth he has. But it's a significant profit. Now, local advertising, national advertising. Gate receipts, parking, catering, etc., sweet catering, sweet uh, sales, all now because sweet sales don't, they're included in the cap, but all the rest of that outside events, all the rest of that is, is pure profit, a- absent, of course, the operating costs. Right. And, and generally, I mean, historically, the television monies. Have been sufficient to play the to pay the biggest cost, which is the labor cost. Yeah, that's correct. Typically, it's exceeded that now. Television has exceeded labor costs now, even though labor costs are forty nine percent of the gross. Um, in, in the old days, when I was first becoming a general manager, the the television and labor costs tracked almost dollar for dollar. And that's why the CBA negotiations were so brutally difficult because the players wanted more and the owners weren't willing to give more. So, so can I ask a stupid question? So if what happens if they do the TV deal prior to the start of the league year, would the cap go up significantly? No, the cap has already been decided. Okay. There's still, there's, there's, there's a group of people who, this is a joke, of course. This is an in-house, uh, 
general manager's joke. There's a group of people that we believe live in the basement of 345 Park <laughs> Avenue. They actually live there. And, and, and one is a couple are union representatives and a couple are management representatives. And, and, and they argue with each other about four hours a day to determine <laughs> what the cap may be. And then at the end of all of that, like a conclave, you know, like the electing a pope, right. they send a signal up to the sixth floor to where Roger Goodell's office is. And they say, OK, we've decided what the cap will be. No one knows how they figure it. And that, that's a joke, obviously. But it, there, there's some truth to it. Not They don't live there. but <laughs> Right. But they do send up smoke to let people know the decision's been made. Yeah. They're actually more trolls than they are cardinals. <laughs> but I mean, but basically, to talk about the finances in the NFL, if you're an owner, this is the unscrewable pooch. I mean, you can't lose money as an NFL owner. I mean, it's. Well, you can if you, if, if you can, if you, if you manage your cash flow poorly, if you. If your debt load is too heavy, which, by the way, the NFL monitors to make sure it isn't. Um, if you if you don't do a good job of marketing your team, you, you're you you can you can lose money, but you got to work hard to do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, um, we we've we've as I as I was afraid. We would. We've exhausted cash the cap and confused everybody. But now back to the fun part, which is the individual player valuation. Um, we know what the cap is. Uh, we know what everybody who has an existing contract is paid. We know what we're going to pay for rookies by and large. We know we're going to pay for carve out for injuries by and large. And now we have to decide uh, who of our own players we're going to sign and what price. And um, this is where the cap guy and sometimes the lawyer will get involved and gum up the works because cap guys, if neither one knows the real football value. All they know, they, they basically go back to an old operating philosophy that I first heard enunciated from the notorious Jack Donlan when I first became an executive. He was the head of the management council. His philosophy was as follows. General managers will always spend more money than they should. They'll always make mistakes. Coaches will always love players who can't play. And it's my job as head of the management council and the cap guy's job and the assistant general manager who I beat over the head uh, on a weekly basis to make sure that all these profligate spenders don't waste the owner's money. <laughs> So uh, that's baked into the cap guy's DNA, or used to be. I'm, hopefully, it's passed by now, uh, because there are, you know, very much more objective and smart people running management council. But it used to be that that was baked into the DNA. So you'd come into the individual player valuation meeting, which sometimes the owner would attend, and, and, and oftentimes the owner would attend, and you'd say, "Well." Um, you know, I think the number on Peyton Manning is going to be $23 million. And the cap guy would get $23 million. Oh, God. <laughs> $23 million. God almighty. You realize that's 14% of the cap? Oh, God almighty. <laughs> we, we can't afford that. How are we going to put a team on the field? And by the way, $23 million, No one's going to pay him $23 million. 
there was a famous discussion. This is the carry on. I'm, I'm obviously I'm I'm doing this tongue in cheek, but this actually is true. Um, in that meeting where we discussed the valuation, the cap guy, the lawyers in there, uh, and and uh, I, I said, Jim, the numbers between twenty three and twenty five million for Peyton on his on his last contract, and uh, and and. Jim looked at the cap guy and the lawyer, and they were they were apoplectic, and and somebody said no one's going to pay him twenty three million, so Jim said, Bill, who would pay him twenty three million? I said, well, let's start here: Dallas, Kansas City, the Giants, uh, the Jets. And Jim said, stop. <laughs> <laughs> the Rams, stop. <laughs> so. Uh, those meetings can 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 are, can be a pain in the neck because people are coming at the problem from different perspectives but that's the owner has a right to assist on insist on that and actually deserves it now if if, if you're if you're working if if your cap valuation your cap guy valuation and your and your player valuation are are too close together. If I were the owner, I'd worry about it. I mean, there ought to be some tension there, uh, because people bring different points of view to the table. Um, the idea that one player like Peyton Manning takes up twenty percent of the cap, and that's somehow a detriment, is nonsense. Uh, we existed for fourteen years with Peyton taking uh, somewhere between twenty-three and twenty-five percent of the cap, and did pretty damn well. It worked out. It worked out okay. So, so did they have kind of like, is there a cap guy school where they get a? Oh yeah, yeah, yes, oh yeah, there's cap guy indoctrination school. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Quarterbacks can't be more than fifteen percent. Running backs. Well, I don't know that they get there. I've never. I'm not allowed to attend. I've never attended, but <laughs> it's secret. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but they do. Yes, they discuss it. I think there are models that actuarial people have come up with. Uh, and they're about as reliable as the as as the yeah. the player evaluation people that had uh, uh, Tyreek Hill rated the tenth best receiver in the National Football League. You know they're they're, they're devoid of realism. Uh, but when you cra- when you graduate top guy uh, uh, cap guy school, you're taught the motto: "We can't afford that." Yes, that's that's exactly right. That's the mantra. You have to be able to recite that in your sleep. Yes, exactly. That's that you you earned your keep then. <laughs> By the way, that that is a bit as Rick knows as a lawyer, uh, and this is what they teach you in general manager school, that um that's a bad statement to make because labor law, if you make that statement, federal labor law requires that you back it up by showing the books. Right. So, you know, the, the real the real answer to that that they teach you in general manager school is that doesn't fit with our priorities. It, it destroys our fin- financial chemistry. I don't think the player is worth that uh, or he's not worth it in the context of our system, things like that. You know, in the old days, you're right, Rich, uh, uh, Rick, the, uh, uh, it, we can't afford that was the first words out of every negotiator's mouth. Right. 
Yeah, you, you definitely can't say that it's a collective bargaining table for sure. No, no. So then, where do you go next in the process? Okay, so you've you, you've now you've now got an individual player evaluation. Uh, you you know that you're going to be cash the cap. Uh, now you go to your own free agent signing list, and you prioritize. Okay. So the 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 Sam linebacker, although he's a good player, if he can't double as a pass rusher. He's probably not going to be a high priority. We're going to assign a low number to him, and it's a number that we won't go beyond. There's no wiggle room there because he's, he's essentially fungible. And I hate that word. I really hate it. And I hate to refer to players as assets or you know, things like because they're real human beings. But this is the one time of year when you have to be devoid of that humanity because you, what you're dealing with here is hard numbers. And, uh, and so you build from the bottom up. So you say, okay, the Sam linebacker, we love him, but if the market's more than 8 million, we can't afford him. Or, they, or 4 million, we can't afford him. And then you go all the way up to Peyton Manning, where you say, whatever it is, we got to pay. You know? Yeah. Do a good job negotiating the contract. Good luck, Bill. Do a good job negotiating the contract. Um, so that that's where everybody fits somewhere in between. The hardest decisions, which Rick alluded to before, are the veteran player who's given you his guts and his blood for six years, who's now coming out of contract, who actuarially doesn't look like he's going to continue to play at that high level, who's a leader in the locker room, who's popular in the community, who you love as a person. You probably, if you're good like we were, you've drafted him. So there are coaches and scouts who are invested because they, you know, emotionally invested. That's the hardest one. That's really the hardest one. I mean, a player's point of view is that is, you know, Jeez, Bill, you know, I gave you my knee in Dallas. I gave you my shoulder in Philadelphia. You know, you know, I've given you, you know, my, the utmost of effort every day. What do I have to do to have you then take care of me? But, of course, Bill, in his job, can't take care of people. He has to put people in place who can play. And that's the sad and very, very bitter reality of this business. How much transparency is there, though, between you and the GM role with the player or maybe the player's agent in terms of this is exactly what our evaluation is. And if you want to live inside of the confines of, hey, we can allocate four million dollars a year for the Sam, you know, if you're willing to do that, that this is what we're willing to do from a just from a strict kind of conversational transparency with the employee. Well, um let me back up to, to set the stage because before I answer your question, um, once we establish the, 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 the signing budget and the priority, um, then we make negotiation assignments. So if Peyton or Marvin or Dallas or Dwight or Robert Mathis uh, or, or uh, Bob, Bob Sanders or, or... Well, Bob was easy because you just went upstairs. 
or or uh, Tarek Glenn or Jeff Saturday were up, okay, I would do that. And then I would parcel out to others, Chris Polian, Tom Telesco, uh, David Caldwell, etc., cetera, uh, Kevin Rogers. I would parcel out the other negotiations to other people. Hey, Bill, did you do that based on anything specific, like a relationship that guy might have with the agent or the player, or was it by sort of seniority? And No, it had to do with the, the agent and, and principally the agent and, the, and where the player was on the priority list. So if, if, the player, if the player was a high-priority player and it was going to be a lot of money and Tom Telesco had a good relationship with the agent and Chris didn't, I would, I would trust Tom to do it. If, if, if someone else uh, had a good relationship with the agent, he, he wasn't going to get it. Chris would do it because, it, you know, you have, to, you have to have people who are, who are competent to do it, to do it because the agent will skin you otherwise. They got to be both competent and experienced. Also, and Jim was wonderful about this, and I'm, I'm not sure that, well, I, so was Mr. Wilson. I take that back. Um, but there are clubs where non-football people do the negotiating, and that's, and that's bad. I, I, that's bad because they can't speak authoritatively to the agent. And you can sometimes get crossways because in my negotiations with the agent, my, unless it were a long-time guy who'd been around the block and who played, Tom Condon comes to mind immediately. My response would be, don't tell me what the player is. I know better than you what the player is. You know, I'm not interested in your evaluation of the player. I've already made my own. So, uh, you know, that gives, that gives you an advantage. Red Auerbach was fa- told me a story one time which was, phenomenal. He's, agents were first coming into business when, when he was well-established, uh, you know, having won all the championships and now as the general manager of the Celtics. And an agent came in and said, I have this presentation to make on my client. Here are these statistics that I think are important. And Red said, you think are important? <laughs> you have statistics you think are important? He said, right here in this folder, I got my statistics and that's what we're going by. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the uh, I'm not sure I ever got that obstreperous, but I think I came close. But the other side of that coin is, if you were talking to a cap guy or a lawyer who worked for a club who wanted to do negotiation, they would say, "Well, I do it devoid of emotion. I don't have any emotion. I don't have any dog in that fight. I didn't draft the guy." But here's the problem. You can make a statement to the agent that's way out of bounds, that gets to the locker room like that. And I can point to teams where there is trouble around the league. If I wanted to, I won't do it. But if I wanted to, I could point to teams and say that's a cap guy or a lawyer. More often than that, a lawyer screwed that up. Mm -hmm. The player's annoyed. You know why? Because the lawyer badmouthed them in the, in the negotiation. So when you're negotiating, when a football person 
football slash business person is negotiate. Let's take John Snyder as an example with Seattle. Tremendous GM, tremendous negotiator. Uh, you know, you don't say a bad word about the player. You don't say, hey, you're all wrong. This guy can't play. I mean, why are you talking to him if he can't play? Right. What's, right. what's, right? what's the point of the conversation? What's the point of the conversation? You, you want to sign a player who can't play right now. Yeah. Right. So what you what you say is, look at your evaluation and mine is a little different. And I'm not going to get into the nuances with you because you don't know anything about offensive line play. So, you know, let's talk what the market is. And that way, I don't have to, which I don't want to, denigrate your player in any way. And, and we don't have to waste time deciding who's the expert on offensive line play here. It's me. Right. So I yeah. win. Oh, no, no, not that I win. Right. right. But I'm not playing the game on your turf. Right. And, of course, Bill, you're having to fight a two-front war because – while the way you espouse is obviously correct way, there's always that cap guy and that in-house team lawyer who want to do your job for you. Well, I mean, you know, it's human nature, right? They have jobs to do and, they, and, and they're expert at it, but it may not be in the best interest of the team to, um, to, to be in a situation where you would denigrate the player because negotiations the 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 biggest weapon the agent has in the negotiations is to say to the player he doesn't care about you Mm -hmm. they don't give a damn about you Mm -hmm. you know they want to save the most money they can now that's hard to say about a guy that may have drafted you the best the agent can say in that situation is, look, he's working for a skinflint owner and and they're not willing to spend the money. You might be better off in another slot, another place. But typically, I, I, if you say something negative about a player, I guarantee two things. One, it's in the locker room the following day. And two, it's on the wife's grapevine the following day. Yep. And both of those things are bad. But, but there's also an un, there's also an underlying reason why actuaries are not life insurance salesmen. <laughs> That's also true. There's some skill. There's some skill that you have. But Bill, just taking like a corporate America perspective on sort of just normalized kind of employee evaluation and employee engagement, how much of the player evaluation is communicated with the player and vice versa? So that like, are they filling out employee evals? Are you filling out player evals and sharing that information so that everyone's kind of operating from a similar thing? Or is all this kind of communicated through the agent in the negotiation? Well, no, it's a good question. I'm giving you what the GM would do in the off season in the context of the player being evaluated. He has a, he has a off season end of season meeting with the position coach and the position coach is going to give him within the context of, again, positive improvement, a, a very objective view of what he has done. And so he, the player will know within reason how the how the club feels about 
is the player's evaluation of that coach communicated back to the coach or is that not done sort of from from a NFL perspective? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, so typically like in corporate America, when you go through like employee negotiations, right, there, there's some sort of annual employee evaluation. At the same time, the employees evaluate their managers. And then that sets a tenor where both parties are kind of uh, have an understanding of where both parties reside to begin that negotiation. And it tends to make those negotiations go smoother because everyone has this formal paper track record of how both parties feel. Yeah. Um, okay. That's HR policy. I, I am not, I have never been involved in something like that. Okay. Um, I, I, I probably would tend to resist it because I think uh, all of this stuff gets public. That's the other point that I wanted to make with respect to negotiations. You have to presume going into negotiation that every word you say is going to appear in somebody's blog site within hours of you saying it. So you have to be, these are all public negotiations. So the, the coach's evaluation of the player, which is, you know, end of season evaluation coach to player remains, hopefully remains confidential. Um, I, I can't recall any being, being leaked, uh, but we were, we were strident about no leaks um, but that's, I mean, that's between the player and the coach, but it is honest and straightforward, but no, there's no feedback. The feedback that you would get, um, that fills that bill is if you have a player's committee, which we did in every place I worked. And when the GM and or the head coach meet with the player's committee, they will, they'll be honest about what their feelings are. So if they think that, a coach is off base in his evaluations or any other way, they'll, they'll say it if there's enough trust. Bill, you know, going back, you know, all the way to the days when we met uh, across the table in Buffalo, uh, my, my theory was that GMs really, really detested agents who tried to negotiate through the press and that you were much better off developing the, the, the real human rapport uh, with the person you're, you're negotiating and keeping that negotiation just among the two of you. I, that was my strategy anyway. It, it, I've never asked you this, but what, what was I, in your mind, was I right with that? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, there's no reason to negotiate in the press. Um, there's no reason for any of it to be public. It's just, you know, at the end when you, but, but unfortunately in this day and age, everything is public. I mean, you're foolish to think that it isn't. Um, let me get to a couple of other important uh, areas that, that, that need to be covered. You establish now, having established your budgetary process and your in-house signing process, now you go to a, your needs list. And, and the need, needs list would have been developed out of that original squad evaluation. So you sit there and say, we're not good enough at left tackle. We're not good enough at the right guard. We're not, we need a, a, a slot receiver who can win consistently. We're not good enough in, you know, with our second running back. And so you establish that needs list and the objective as you enter the, free, the, the off season 
is to, in any way you can, generally speaking, fill the top seven or eight needs. And you keep on working that until the end of the season. You know, if you're going to go to the playoffs and you're in week 15 and somebody good comes on the wire who fills a need, go get them. You know, you never stop working on that. So that needs list stays in the whiteboard uh, where, where I could see it every day. And, 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 you know, when we filled it, I'd put a line through it, but it, it's, it's never always filled. So, but, but that's the, that's, that's the whole, that's the roadmap for what you do in the off season. Then you turn to um, the outside UFA target list. And that's, in my mind, much, much more difficult because it's like taking your kids shopping, you know? Right. I want this, uh, that, I want that. I want this one. You know, everybody wants something. So not everybody can have something. Yeah. There's right. only a finite amount of money. Yeah. So everybody in the organization knew, and we said publicly to the great derision from the local media in both Buffalo and Indianapolis, that we would fill our in, uh, we take care of our own players first. We're going to build from within. And, uh, and, and we won't go into the free agent market unless we believe that we're getting the right guy at the right money who's the right fit for us. Um, if you remember, the late, great Ted Thompson, God rest his soul, was vilified in Green Bay every year because he, quote, didn't sign free agents. And Ted said to me one time, how come they don't attack you like they attack me. I said they do. You just don't read the green. You don't read the Indianapolis <laughs> press. <laughs> but but the, the the fact of the matter is the press wants you to sign somebody, anybody. They're out there. Sign them. Sign them. With what? They need it. Yeah, they need a story for the evening news, right, or the next day's press. Which is why, by the way. Gene Upshaw wanted free agency so badly, and and every player's union in, in the history of sports wanted free agency because they know that it's the quickest way to gin up the fans, the quickest way to gin up the press, to create, they think, pressure on the general manager. And there are some general managers who succumbed to it, um, to, to sign a player that they really shouldn't sign. Now, in baseball... I'm told that there, that there are some, quote, super agents who actually bypass the general manager. They go right to the owner and, and they get the owner to spend way more money than the general manager would ever spend. I think we have one in this town that happens to do that all the time. The bottom line is it's, a, it's, it's bad business, but that's free agency. So now the way we set our the way we set the preferences in free agency was. First of all, dollars. Dollars come first because there's only so many dollars. And if a guy is outside your price range, sorry. Secondly, by position. It had to be a position that impacted the team, not just to fill a need. We'd rather fill a need with a, with a rookie than with a, with a mid-level veteran because the mid-level veteran has one big problem. 
he gets hurt. Right. Right? At a higher rate than the rookie. So, uh, so secondly, had to be a, a, a position we need. Then we'd make the negotiated uh, uh, assignments. And then we would establish the, the so-called visit protocols. We did not wine and dine. I remember famously talking to a new owner many years ago who said, um, I'm in the movie business and, and we're going to entertain these agents the way we entertain them in Hollywood. I said, good. Um, come and talk to me in three years and let's see how it worked. Three years later, he came back and said, it was a waste of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they won't give you a break. <laughs> but speaking for agents, they will not turn down a free meal. Yeah, no, Rick, Rick loves a free meal. Yeah, right. You know. But yeah, you're right. It, do, it does nothing. We did not recruit because we believed that recruiting was a slap in the face to the player. These are professionals. They know full well that what they're after is money and a secure job. What we did say was we'll answer any questions that you have. We'll answer any questions your wife has. If you want to know about parochial schools, we'll send you a list of all of them. If you want to know about private schools, we'll send you a list of all of them. If you want to know where the best school districts are, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll send you all of that information. We're happy to answer any questions and take as much time as we have to. But we're not going to show you slick videos. We're not going to take you to St. Elmo's. Right. <laughs> Because they couldn't withstand the shrimp cocktail anyway, but <laughs> it's just St. Elmo's. For those that don't know, is the is one of the famous restaurants in Indianapolis, and it's a, it's the probably the most famous sports oriented restaurant. Um, but our deal was always, and I and I've said this publicly numerous times. I don't care how much you wine and dine the player, how much you recruit him. In the end, the agent's going to take him where the best money is. Period. Case closed. You know, the other thing, Bill, I, I always found um, very influential and people who could be your best salesman are other players on your team because that's yeah. who players call. And if they if they say Bill's a straight shooter, the coach is a good guy, they can trust their word, we believe there's a place for you here, come on and, you know, join the team. I mean, that matters a lot more almost than anything anybody else can say anyway. It does, absolutely. That's correct. That's the greatest reference you can have. And vice versa, by the way, I've had I've had players come to me and say, are you interested in uh, in Rick Schaefer as a free agent? I say, yeah, we kind of like him. I said, don't be right. Right. <laughs> he doesn't fit. He's not our kind of guy. I, I know the guy who said that about me. Yeah. OK, I, obviously, I'm being facetious, but that's not a facetious conversation. It's happened on numerous occasions. Yeah. You, yeah. Where, where players would come and say, no, 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 stay away from him. Bad locker room guy. Well, first of all, you you know what the last year's market was, so you mark that up ten percent to start with, right? And and you you'll, you'll probably be pretty close to right. Do you think that'll be the case this year? Yeah, it always is the case. Well, I'm just saying with the cap being lower. It's always the case. Yeah. The premier fair agents are going to get what they get. 
Everybody else is going to suffer. That's that's life in America in 2021. It's life. You took the words right out of my mouth. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the world we're living in. Yep. <laughs> so. Uh, bye bye, middle class. And then and then we, you know, we always had um, a free agent board. So it was exactly like the draft board. So we had them listed by position in order of importance in terms of where we saw them in order of preference and and then in terms of where what what we felt they could contribute to us so and it wasn't it wasn't very big because we were not we had a really good team and we were not going to upset the financial chemistry of our team by investing in paying a guy more money than a guy that was a better player than him on our team just because the market took us there. And that one, I mean, I, I was beaten over the head repeatedly uh, by the local media, particularly a columnist about that, because I was concerned about, quote, financial chemistry. It's a real thing. You bring a guy into your locker room and you and I always use this example. I think Reggie Wayne was making about six million dollars back in 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 nine or ten, somewhere around there. You bring him, a guy into the locker room, play him $8 million, and he's not as good a player as Reggie Wayne. Reggie's upset. His friends are upset. Guys who think they were cheated out of money to pay this guy were, are upset. Your team goes to hell in a handbasket. And again, I can point to teams like that around the league every year where they make those mistakes. Financial chemistry is real. It's important. And you ignore it at your peril. Um so the board tells us who's left and who's available. And, you know, I, I can remember days where we'd come into the pro scouting room and, and look at the board and, and I'd say, well, you know, we're out of business on left corners. Nobody left to pay. I wouldn't pay this, these guys a dime, you know. So that's how it works. Um, and then we get to... Uh, so that brings us to March 10th, which is now we're crossing over. Negotiations have not yet begun with free agents, but we're prepared. And now March 10th begins the lead up to um, begins the, the lead up to draft preparation. We've already we we're allowed somewhere around the 10th to make contact with the agents for U.S. So those discussions begin. But now we also turn my I turn my attention to combine prep to making sure that the draft eligible, the juniors who are coming into the draft, the underclassmen, that their files are all complete and we know everything we can know about them. And then we make sure that the pre-combine draft board is finalized so that we know where all of these juniors now fit. There may be in any given year a dozen juniors that we didn't anticipate uh, coming out. But when they made their declaration on January 15th, between January 15th and March 15th, the scouts have gone over them with a fine tooth comb and we put them where they belong on the board so that as we enter the combine, the board is um, clean and clear and absolutely pristine with respect to how we evaluated them as football players minus 
height, weight, speed, uh, some significant test scores, and the so-called intangibles. And that's it. That's that's the that's how the months of January, February, and and early March go. There you go. Well, that's a good place for us to flip into the audible for this week. Rick, I think you open with a really fun one. So as you will recall, Bill, uh, in 1998, in 1988, uh, when you were the GM with the Bills, you drafted Martin Mayhew. In 2021, Martin Mayhew serves as the GM for the Washington football team, and he has hired a certain person by the name of Chris Polian. Give us your thoughts on Martin Mayhew as a player and how things are going to go for Chris in the nation's capital. Well, one phrase that covers that all in the family, right? Uh, <laughs> Martin's, Martin's part of the family dating back to, I don't know, 80, 86 or 87, somewhere around there. Um, I've often said that Martin was the biggest mistake I've ever made. Um, I can't remember whether we drafted him or signed him as a free agent, but we loved him. And he, he played at a position corner that, that we badly needed. And, and we loved him for all the reasons that we love players throughout the year, smart, fast, physical, high character, et cetera. Uh, you know, standout individual. And along came plan B, which basically said that you had to release seven players from your roster and make them free agents, and you couldn't negotiate with them. And Donlin threatened to, to cut off the hands of any general manager who negotiated with his own free agent. Those guys had to go out on the market because Plan B was designed to fool the court into believing that there was true free agency. And, um, and so, as luck would, of course, as luck would have it, um, Martin went out on the, on the market, and I got a call from his then agent who said he's got uh, something like a $3,000 bonus or something like that from $5,000 bonus from, I may be wrong on the money, but it wasn't a big number, from, I think it was Tampa Bay, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and I said, all right, he said he wants to stay. And I said, well, we want him to stay in the worst way. And, and so, um, I talked it over with Mr. Wilson and, and Mr. Wilson said, uh, I don't like doing that. And I said, you're right. I don't like doing it. He said, we could get a big fine. We could get in trouble with the league. You know, we could, it could foul up the court situation I know you want to do it, and so do I, but don't. So we let him go. And, of course, uh, the next day we found out that everybody was tampering with everybody. Everybody was signing their own guys, and Donlin <laughs> could have given a fig less. Uh, and and so I've always said, you know, people say, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? Martin Mayhew, letting him go, because he went on to have a great career. 
Hey, we're glad we got him in D.C., so uh, hopefully the success comes back yep. in the other part of the office. All right, well, Bill, don't shoot the messenger on this one. I'm just reading fan questions. <laughs> I know Bill hates the media stories, so I ask this with caution, but with his ESPN hat on, what does Bill think the biggest media story of the offseason will be? Well, I can give you the answer to that without uh, without uh, getting aggravated. Uh the biggest media story is always quarterbacks, and that will be the media story uh, from this day forward because uh, we got quarterback movement already. Uh, we're going to have uh, Deshaun Watson. That will be the lead story until it's finally solidified, and then we'll turn to the draft, and we'll and then there's people like Trubisky and others that come free by dint of the fact that their individual club makes a another movement, uh, you know, makes another move at the position. So this is going to be um, uh, quarterback, uh, uh, what would we call it, uh, musical chairs. Yeah. And, and it will be the number one story uh, with J.J. With, uh, Watt as a sort of a distant second, I think. There you go. All right. Well, it's quarterback Mageddon. They're getting out of their original city this year, according to Mr. Polian. All right. Well, without further ado, that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you guys. As always, if you have questions for the audible, please hit us up on Twitter at IFBillPolian, and we will be sure to include them. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Podcorn. Uh, we really love it. And hey, Rick's using it, which is a good thing. Hey, so, you know, there you absolutely. go. All right. Hey, listen, they, uh, Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Double mask. Amen. Double mask. Let's keep everybody safe. We're on the right track. Let's keep it up. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.